the road to Zion. It's a long road. On your outline, you see three points. Seeking the presence of God. Striving to be in the presence of God. And satisfied in the presence of God. Here lies a psalm of the sons of Korah. We're not sure who composed this psalm. Most likely it's David. There's a resemblance to the psalm that we read previously in Psalm 63. But this, this particular Psalm 84 is one of 11 psalms titled the, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah. They include Psalm 42, 44 to 49, 84 to 85, 87 to 88. But Psalm 84 is the first of the four that cluster together. Now in the Old Testament, we are told in Numbers chapter 3, right? That there were duties that were prescribed to the tribe of the Levites, the tribe of Levi. There were to be a service to the priests. And in particular, Aaron was the priest at the time of Moses, his brother. These were the specific roles. This, this is what they had to do. They had to keep guard over the priest and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, before their gathering, as they minister at the tabernacle. They were to guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and to keep guard over the people of Israel as they ministered at this tabernacle. Essentially, they were gatekeepers, they were doorkeepers. And Levi had three sons. One was Gershon, another Kohath, and another Moari. Korah was the grandson of Kohath. And number 16 says this, it describes the revolt against Moses and Aaron. They revolted and said, this is... What are we doing in the presence of God as gatekeepers? Look at your position. Look how far you, where have you brought us to Moses? Where have you brought us to Aaron? They rebelled against the leadership. They rebelled against God essentially. But this is what happened to Korah. Korah and 250 men that challenged the position and authority of Moses were destroyed. In treating the Lord with contempt, the ground under them gave way. And we know the fire came upon those 250 men. But there is hope. God spared the sons of Korah. God spared the sons of Korah. His divine plan for the line of Korah was intact. In Numbers 26, we know that God ordered a census. And we read, we can read about this in, in Numbers 26, 9 to 11. The sons of Korah were numbered there. Now Elkanah, as we know, was a grandson of Korah. And so was the prophet Samuel, who came seven generations after Korah. Why do we need this history lesson, you ask? What is the importance of this? See, the Lord was gracious. The Lord was gracious to, to spare the lives of the son of Korah. 
God could have destroyed them. He could have wiped out the whole clan, these descendants. But God had a divine plan and purpose. His promise is forevermore. See, though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. His mercy is more. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. See, this psalm is split into three sections. We, verse 1 to 4, then 5 to 8, then 9 to 12. We see this with the Scylla moments. So as we look at the first point, seeking the presence of God. Let's read again verse 1 to 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself at your altars, O Lord of hosts. For my King, my King, my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. See that word there, lovely, how lovely is your dwelling place. It's better translated, dearly beloved. It's an intimate connection with the presence of God. This is important because the psalmist is declaring his endearing relationship with the dwelling place of God himself. The psalmist sings of the loveliness of God's dwelling. The sons of Korah, more than most, understood the significance of serving in the house of God. David spoke about this, didn't he, in Psalms 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that would I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Because, because why he says, so to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, David's love for the house of the Lord, however, is superseded by his love for God. His love for God. He loved the house of God because of, the, his, love for, for, because of his love for God. See, the loveliness of the tabernacle was far above the, the stunning gold and the cedar and that, that, was, that was all around at the time, right? And the wonderful architectural designs and the arts that were in place. But rather the very person whose presence, majesty, glory and dominion dwells there. That's who he was seeking. God himself is the spotlight. He is the highlight. He's the essence of the place. Without him, there is no delighting or singing. There's nothing to sing about. This dwelling place served as a meeting place between God and his people, a tent of meeting. The tabernacle represented Yahweh's house among Israel. And they, in turn, gathered around his house. See, the psalmist in verse 2 longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. We know there are two courts, one for the priests and one for the, the, the Israelites that, that were coming to worship the people of God. But here there was a deep connection suggested here, an intense desire to be with God and his people. The two courts. A holy seeking and endurance to spend time with God and other believers. Do you long and faint to spend time with God? 
Do you long and faint to spend time with his people? If we're being honest, sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes we don't. We are tired from a long week. Sometimes sickness does its best to weaken our resolve. Sin pulls us away because sin, when it's exposed, we don't like it. We feel the guilt. Sometimes we're upset at God for why has he not done something? Or maybe he has done something. Or indeed, there may be griping pain between believers in Christ. This wouldn't have been different for the psalmist. Human is also a sinner in need of a saviour. Yet the yearning for the courts of God is beyond the aesthetics, the razzmatazz, right? Beyond the music, the aid to worship music. Yes, all of these things. But he'd rather spend time with God himself. Our worship is to the living God. And with that, verse 2 highlights our, our soul, heart and flesh are partakers of giving worship to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. This must be our pursuit of right standing before God. To be acceptable in the sight of God. Our longing for the house of God should have at its core a desire for God himself. Otherwise, it's just a building. It's just a shell. Otherwise, our singing is like loud symbols. Or fellowship as a social club. God must be at the centre of our worship. The living God who dwelt with Adam and Eve in Eden draws near to his people in the days of Moses and beyond in the tent of meeting. But in his redemptive plan, the living God now lives in us. He lives in us. Every true and every true believer in Christ. Do you see the steps that God makes to restore that relationship we once had with him? He indwells man now by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself, who makes a home in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in a believer's life because Jesus dwelt among us. Jesus came to be with us. He came for us and to save us. John 1.14, as we read yesterday, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the son, of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Dwelt, that says, that passage says, dwelt to tabernacle. Jesus tabernacles among us. He is the reality of the former shadow illustrated in the Old Testament. The true and abiding dwelling place. A strong tower in which the righteous man runs into and is safe. The psalmist crying out here, seeking not the physical courts of the temple, but for a consecrated heart to be 
the dwelling of the Lord. When Jesus reveals himself to a person through the Holy Spirit, he transforms our heart and makes a home in us. Our bodies become the temple of God. A mystery that only the God-man, Jesus, connects God to man. Do you desire for Jesus to make a home in your life? Well, verse 3 says, Even the sparrows find a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God, my King and my God. Even sparrows and swallows find a home and rest in the dwelling place of God. This is a prophetic song, so we we mustn't miss it because we can't take everything literally. Because there was a continuous blazing at the altar. So if these birds were resting there, then there would be an alternative to the Christmas turkey that you had yesterday, right? It would be toast. So what can we deduce from this verse? What is saying that these, these birds that weren't necessarily held in in high esteem, right? They found a home in the courts of the Lord of hosts, an altar close to the altar, being close to the most holy place signifies intimacy, a closeness. The swallow goes back and forth to find a nest for its young. Building, building, building. Looks chaotic, has a purpose in mind. In the courts of God, in God's dwelling place. But how much more should you who are made in the image of God rest and make a home in the secret place of the Most High? Only by faith in Jesus do you find rest. Jesus is the rest for everyone that trusts in Him. Are you in despair? Are you broken by the weight of your sins? Do you thirst and find no satisfaction in worldly things and ways? Have you come to the end of your way? Have you come to the end of yourself? There is an altar where your sins and my sins have been been paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Come and exchange your sins for a beautiful saviour. He has taken our place, a divine substitution. He died in our place. Yet we rejected and rebelled against God. Come and receive a true and abiding joy found in Christ. See, even notice the use of the word, of the, the phrase, the Lord of hosts in verse 1. End of verse 3, also verse 8, verse 12. Lord is Yahweh, the self-existent God. God of hosts of heaven. God that commands angelic hosts. Our God, the living God. When we think of the armies of the angelic hosts of heaven, that God as at his disposal speaks of his supreme authority. An awesome power, a mighty God. Who is the King of glory? The King. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That's what we're reminded of in Psalm 24. 
This is the mighty God that defeats rebellious foes, yet establishes his kingdom on Mount Zion. There is an acknowledgement here of God as a warrior and the Lord over all things in the heavens and the earth. As we reflect on this first advent, we're reminded that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. And he is coming back. His return will be with the armies, the angelic hosts, full fire in his eyes. He's coming back at the sound of the trumpet. See, our love for God is allied to our reverence of who God is. We are quick to say as Christians that we love God, but do we fear him? Do we reverent him? The true worship of God flows from a fearing heart, a humble disposition, a reverence of the Lord of hosts. See, the ending of verse three demonstrates the wonderful, precious beholding of God by the psalmist. He says this, my God, my King, and my God. Here lies at the heart of this verse, verse 1 to 4. The psalmist understands the essence of the dwelling place, a personal declaration of the relationship he has with God. My King, my God. It's possible that the psalmist may have been unable to go to worship in the courts. Many different reasons, maybe due to sickness, maybe trouble, maybe exile. We don't know. But yet he acknowledges the great privilege for those that are able to go to the temple and those that serve in the temple, the priests, the Levites, others. For as verse 4 states, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. This is the first of the three Beatitudes in this passage. Those who dwell in God's house are divinely and supremely favoured. As you would enjoy the benefits of living with a family member or friend, how much more would you enjoy the supreme and divine blessings, blessings of God when we spend time in his presence? I'm just not referring to our gathering on a Sunday, but our daily communion with God. Or how we need to consecrate ourselves to enjoy the presence of God, to wait on the Lord through the means of grace, prayer, to, to sing psalms, to read and to study the word of God, to preach the word of God, to teach the word of God. We need that joy in us, to memorize scripture, to love it, to cherish it, to exhort one another in these last days to even do self-examination in the presence of God, reflect about God's goodness and where we're at with the Lord. Are you preparing for the return of the King? Are you preparing for the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Are you looking for a home? Jesus is sending you an invitation to an everlasting dwelling place that is a blessed assurance. Your bills are paid for. You don't need to worry about moths and rodents. 
The great government of God provides living water. No more government juice, but the living water that comes from the greatest government himself, the living God. Are you running elter-skelter, looking desperately, seeking for peace, but find none? Only he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide, will abide with him. Have you forgotten how wonderful the presence of God is? Have you lost sight of the beauty of Jesus? Are you resisting the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Return home. Return home. Pray for God to return the joy of your salvation. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. Those who are growing in communion with God ever sing of his praises. That's what verse 4 is saying. His praise shall continually be on my lips. David sings in Psalm 63 we read earlier. We must ask God to satisfy us with his presence. Lest we forget his benefits. Lest we forget his goodness. The response to embrace, to the response to embracing this blessing from God is to praise him. To give him all your praise and worship and to tell others about this good news, about this wonderful home that you have found. To invite them in and say, come and see what the Lord has done. He has taken me from the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock, the rock of ages. We are to enjoy heaven here on earth with the living God. Because why? Because he has drawn near to us. And as a church, we recognize that this is the picture of what is to come. We must enjoy God's presence now because we will be doing this for eternity. God has come to be with us. And he's assured us that he is coming back. We will be with him. Let's enjoy his presence now. Well, that's all we'll be doing for eternity, bowing down, worshipping and singing and praising our God. But Christians, we know we're like pilgrims. We're going towards a heavenly Zion. And we must strive. There is things to war with. We must strive to follow the way to the heavenly Zion. And this is our second point. Striving to be in the presence of God. This is the second beatitude in the Psalms. Verse 5 says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. See, Pastor Chola wonderfully walked us through those Psalms of ascent. So we, we are all familiar, right, with what it entails going up to worship at the tent, temple in Jerusalem. See, on the way to this earthly Zion, the temple, they would require strength for the journey and the resolve to follow the way there. There would have been obstacles and distractions along the way as we face as pilgrims here on earth. Blessed are those that place their strength in God, putting no confidence in the flesh. That's what the word says. Blessed are those who have their hearts set and aligned to eternity to come. Eternity with God. See, we note here the implications of pilgrim, pilgrims as, as, as plural. The, the psalmist moves from my soul longs 
faints for and my heart and flesh sing for in verse 2. And in verse 3, my king, my God. But now we read in verse 5 to 7 the reference to those whose strength is in the Lord. Verse 5 reads, whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. What do we take from these verses? That the strength of a Christian is in God. That our strength is initiated by God himself. That there is strength in numbers. Often young, as a young person say safety in numbers. But there is strength in numbers because gathering together to worship God and walking together, we're walking to a home. We hold each other's hands. We're walking home to Zion. Blessed are those who have their strength in God because he is the Lord of hosts. His armies, his angelic hosts, the power and dominion that he has. Our hearts are the battleground to which our posture must be directed. There is no greater part of man that is impacted more than our hearts. Saving grace of God must be received by faith in Christ and Christ alone. If your heart is not set on something, what results is only reluctance to do that thing, right? Or there's a delay to engage. Or there's no movement at all. Just stagnancy. See, a truly converted believer has been given a new heart that is fixed on the journey to the new Jerusalem. The map to heaven is written on our hearts. God himself has transcribed his laws and put his spirit inside to guide and to lead those who love him. Those with God's strength and a contrite heart love the house of God. They love the people of God. But most especially, they love God the most. See, the way to the holy Mount Zion may have some valleys to contend with, like the psalmist suggests. Whilst we're not fully aware of whether the valley of Baca actually exists or what it signifies, it's a reference here talking about the valley of weeping, a place of weeping, symbolic of deep valleys, difficult situations, sorrows that as Christians that we may face. The life of a pilgrim is without suffering and pain. The psalmist says you are blessed when you go through such valleys. If indeed your strength is in the Lord. The road, the road to Zion is, will involve uphill struggles. We'll face many battles in the midst of deep waters. We may not be aware of what God is doing or what he's up to. But he has promised he will never fail. Notice the comfort and assurance in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it to a place, a place of springs. In times of suffering, Christians should seek opportunities to be thankful, to see the springs of blessings all around. Encouragements in dark moments. They go through the valley, a momentary period, but there is a hope and a sure destination. The psalmist states the early rain also covers the valley of, with pools. As the farmer waits 
for that early rain in autumn. They are waiting, right? That early rain that cultivates the ground. There was a promise of the spiritual dews of heaven raining down the abundance causing the pool within wherein the love of God is poured out. In our suffering, we experience God even the more. What blessing that he endures on us. Endures on us. See, such blessings that draws us to the living word, to draw from his living water. And then we are refreshed by his Holy Spirit in the valley. Verse 7 says they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. See, the Christian gains even more strength through ordinary troubles. Sorry, the Christian gains even more strength though ordinary, how ordinary the troubles may look, right? And the, the, the troubles may cause a diminishing of strength. But God himself quickens our strength, empowers us. He, why? Because he's the giver of strength. He renews the strength of his people. They go from strength to strength. Until what? Until where? Where did they reach? They reached their destination. They reached their destination. Oh, what? A wonderful testimony for those whose hearts are set on the highways of Zion. Each one makes it to Zion, the city of the living God. The city of the great king, the residence of our God. None is lost. Each one makes it. The faithful followers of Jesus have their eyes peeled and set on their heavenly destination. We live with an end in view. We live here on earth with an end in view. Our saviour Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. The destination is secure because our, our, our union with Jesus guarantees that. It guarantees our destination. So Jesus' birth was the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. His life demonstrated the narrow way to heaven. His love for sinners revealing his servanthood. His perfect communication with God the Father displaying his deity. Yet in his humanity, a total surrender and dependency on God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is faithful to God and to keep his sheep as the good shepherd. He laid down his life for sinners, for us, so that we can be free from the yoke, the bondage of sin. His strength in exchange for our weakness. His once for all sacrifice for our sins has made a new and a living way into the presence of God. On the cross, Jesus died and we know the curtain was torn into two. So we have confidence now to enter into Zion, the presence of God. The writer of Hebrew in, in, in chapter 10, 23, verse 25, encourages believers to do two things. He says, to hold fast to the confession of our hope in the valley. Why? Because he who promised, he who promised is faithful. Jesus at his second coming, he will come. And Revelation says that, he is faithful and true. 
Our faithful God is coming. And two, to stir up one another to love God and good works. Let's not neglect meeting together. A community of believers. Where we grow in love. Where we grow in good works. That reveal that we are truly his disciples. So the gathering to meet, to adore, worship and to praise God in his temple is symbolic of what we will do for eternity. If you're not enjoying God's presence now, if you're not enjoying being part of the body of Christ, physically meeting, daily worship of God, how will we enjoy his divine presence forevermore when we see him face to face? And this is our final point. Satisfied in the presence of God. Verse 8 to 12 is so packed. It could be another sermon. But three things that the psalmist, I want to encourage us, the psalmist is saying to us this morning. That God, one, God is a covenant keeper. That two, his presence is like no other. And that the benefits of his presence are boundless. God is a covenant keeper. The psalmist reverts back to the first person again. First person narrative is in verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Then there is a plea and reverence to, to the, a reference to the God of Jacob, signifying the, the covenant name of God. God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But what is this plea based on? God is a shield. That God is a shield. That's what he's saying. What is the plea for? He's saying that we, to look on the face of your anointed. To look on the face of the king. So we have verse 8 that says, Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God. And verse 9, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. The psalmist is crying out for God. Crying out. Those who are satisfied with God as their greatest treasure, cry out for him. And in turn, cry out for God and he satisfies our cry, our thirst. As a child cries out looking for attention, Looking for food. When we cry out to the Lord, he satisfies us. His presence is like no other. The psalmist has tasted and seen that truly that the Lord is good. His presence is like water to his soul with great assurance. He declares in verse 10, better is one day in your courts in the courts of the law, in the courts of God, than a thousand elsewhere. And we see this when we compare it with the opposite is true for Korah's rebellion. Whilst Korah was angry at what he deemed a minuscule role in the house of God that led to his rebellion against Moses and Aaron, consequently rebelling to God, the psalmist paints a picture of the sons of Korah, appreciating, finding satisfaction 
as doorkeepers, as gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. Dan being associated with the tent of wickedness. And we're reminded, in fact, that Moses warned the congregation in number 16 to stay away from the tent of wickedness of Korah. Here are his sons finding pleasure and joy in the presence of God. There is, great, there is no great liberty and freedom outside of Christ. See, Korah's rebellion is the prime example. The constraints of the gospel of Christ, being a servant of Jesus, Serving others, living for the glory of God, not standing in the way of sinners or in the seat of scoffers are the very thing we must do to have freedom. Jesus has said to come to him, all that heavy laden, he will give rest for our soul. His yoke is easy. Do not be yoked to this world. Seek the kingdom of God. Finally, the benefits are boundless. We read of the gifts and the benefits of God and his house. Verse 11 says, the Lord God is the sun, he's the giver of life and light. He's a shield, he's a protector, a defender. He's coming back. No good thing does he withhold. Here's the condition though, for those who walk uprightly, righteous, right standing with God. All of, those, all of these benefits of the kingdom is without effect to the unrighteous. God is good and he is the giver of good gifts. The father of lights, the shine forces light, the light of the gospel of Christ into our heart. We must be purified by the life and death of Christ. The Bible says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. But for those that repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Verse 9 rings true. Look on the face of your anointed. Here lies the real meaning. For everyone trusting in Jesus, God does not see our filthy rags. He looks on the face of the anointed. Who is the anointed? The king of glory, Jesus himself. He sees his face. The king of the ages. If you long for this heavenly dwelling place, Psalm 84 is pointing us, praise your God. I must praise God. A Christian's journey begins, that pilgrimage begins to the heavenly Zion by first an appreciation and delight and the revelation of who God is. Then being given to a yearning a desire, a longing for God. And we're given strength for the journey. And then increased strength. When we're tested, when we are facing the, t- the test of our faith in hardship, in challenging times, there is strength added to us. Why? Because we receive grace upon grace. He gives even more grace. There's an appreciation and application of the gifts and the benefits of knowing God, a blessed assurance that Jesus will deliver you to the golden shore, the Zion city, where Christ will be ours forevermore.
finally, I end on this. Verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The pilgrim observed that the journey to Zion was really about the worship of the Lord and enjoying the blessedness of having a relationship with God. So trust and believe in the Lord Jesus for he is the way, he is the way to Zion. Amen.